to alleviate suffering, which comes from operationally that looks like uh, hunger relief and keeping people either in their home or you know in some type of shelter. Then the the other aspect of our mission statement is to promote dignity, which is how our facilities look like, how we treat our guests and our clients, but also a real strong focus on education, from early childhood education, uh, teens, adult education, life skills education, vocational education. We think education promotes the dignity of the individuals that we're caring for. Then the third element of our mission statement, which you, you want operational missions to tie together and make sense, right? Uh, the third point of our mission statement is uh, to instill self-sufficiency. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations with entrepreneurs who started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and this month during the holidays, we are featuring organizations that make the world a better place through their acts of service to people and communities. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Tim Marks, the CEO and President of Metropolitan Ministries right here in Tampa, Florida, to the show. Tim, thank you for joining me. Uh, Dr. White, it's a real pleasure. Uh, you know, it's uh, something I always say is uh, as an electrical engineer, running a homeless shelter that anybody can make a difference in a nonprofit by bringing um, their passion for what they believe in, um, their experiences in life and the lens and how they see things. Anybody can make a difference in a nonprofit and I'll, I'll be exhibit A for that statement. Well, that's awesome. I love it. And I, I love having you on the show. Um, your wife is a wonderful friend of mine, and she makes a big difference in the community as well. So you all are quite a, a power couple, and it's, it's wonderful to take the time to talk to you today. So um, this show is typically about entrepreneurship, and I know there's a lot of an entrepreneurial mindset required to run a not-for-profit. So I thought it would be very cool during this uh, holiday season to talk to several not-for-profits that are making a difference. And one of the first ones that came to mind is Metropolitan Ministries in Tampa area. And so I, I love uh, having the opportunity to share your story and, and learn more about how you got into this role and maybe even talk a little bit about how, how an entrepreneurial mindset might impact what you do. So let's get started. Let's, let's talk a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are today as the CEO and president of this organization. And tell us a little bit also about Metropolitan Ministries, your mission and your work and, and what you do for the greater Tampa Bay region. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's something I'm uh, proud to be associated with Metropolitan Ministries. Uh, it's been around for 51 years, but for my journey, uh, I, I grew up uh, in the age of the digital technology explosion, pre-internet, uh, packet switching networks, digital radio networks. I was designing for something called the phone company, which a lot of people don't know what the phone company is anymore. Uh, but back in the day, uh, it was a regulated entity, and I was in Detroit, and uh, the automotives were always pushing uh, the use of technology in their business uh, sector and information technology, CAD-CAM data exchange, 
And back in the day, it was, again, regulated entity, bandwidths were limited, very expensive technology. And the automotives were either going to build their own networks or the phone company was going to work with them. And so I got involved with a lot of leading edge uh, data design that was built to build these intranets, if you will, for Ford GM, and at the time it was called Chrysler. And uh, so I enjoyed doing that work. And I found myself getting closer and closer to the customer as an engineer. And I realized that's a good place to be because the sales guys always make more money than the engineers. So why don't I go be a sales guy? So I started doing sales and ended up leading a large uh, multi-state team uh, leading uh, organizations like uh, General Motors uh, and meeting their domestic, you know, voice, data, video needs, and uh, learned a lot about customer service. Learned a lot about it's uh, it's about relationships. It's not about just the transactions. Anything you can offer a larger corporation tends to be a commodity, right? Everybody wants a little bit of that business. And so you've got to win it over with great customer service and uh, relationship building, which uh, you know, is kind of what I do today. And the other thing is like when you have a large, like $90 million module and you need to grow it by 10% or whatever the number is that comes out from corporate, you've got to be willing to take risk, right? Calculated risk. I mean, you can't just keep growing your business on the same product over and over again. You have market share in a particular product. And it may be a mature product, but how are you going to grow revenue unless you take advantage of some new technology and new risk? And I think what I'll call calculated risk, because, you know, if you really screw up, you're putting all this established revenue at risk, but you still have this desire to grow revenue because you're on a commission plan, plus the organization is looking for you to grow. So I got involved with a lot of leading edge initiatives that a typical phone company wouldn't get involved in. But we had to to, to maintain our position in the account, uh, but also do it wisely. So I got involved with third-party vendors writing specialized code that maybe you, know, you wouldn't find anywhere else or developing products that were unique to the customer segment I was working in. And that, that idea of taking calculated risks uh, is something that I believe I do within my entrepreneur's uh, spirit. I can't put our reputation at risk in the community as a nonprofit, but I can take calculated risks to try some things to maybe grow support or help make a difference in our community without necessarily jeopardizing our reputation. And so uh, I'll come to that a little bit later when we talk about some of the new things we've been doing. But in general, Metropolitan Ministries started out basically doing hunger relief. I was uh, formed in 1972. Uh, young men were coming back from the Vietnam War and the traditional view of what homelessness looked like and people on the streets uh, was really kind of a post-Vietnam era uh, phenomenon in America. Uh, back in the 80s, though, a new phenomenon started showing up and Time Magazine did a story about uh, homeless families sleeping in their cars, which was kind of a new thing that we hadn't seen in America. And that's when our past uh, CEO uh, started focusing on families. He came from a large family. He couldn't see and understand kids sleeping in cars and wanted to do something about that. We built our first family shelter in 1987. 
And today we house about 250 families in various shelters throughout Tampa Bay, including um, affordable housing developments, as well as traditional homeless shelters. Our, our mission statement falls to three things. To alleviate suffering, which comes from operationally that looks like uh, hunger relief and keeping people either in their home or you know in some type of shelter. Then the the other aspect of our mission statement is to promote dignity, which is how our facilities look like, how we treat our guests and our clients, but also a real strong focus on education, from early childhood education, uh, teens, adult education, life skills education, vocational education. We think education promotes the dignity of the individuals that we're caring for. Then the third element of our mission statement, which you, you want operational missions to tie together and make sense, right? Uh, the third point of our mission statement is uh, to instill self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency comes from having a job and an affordable place to stay. And we work real hard so that our families aren't just successful when they're with us, but they're successful when they graduate out of our programs. And uh, we call our families every three months after they've left the program and uh, about 90% of them are still in stable housing 18 months after they leave the program. So we know we are equipping and helping these families uh, be self-sufficient, which is what we strive to do. So mission is what we do every day. Vision is what we aspire to be. And I'll just give you the first line of our vision statement says that Metropolitan Ministries will be America's most effective caregiver. And I put the emphasis on will be because that's the way we look at it is that we can be better today and better tomorrow. Uh, we're not striving to be the best to put up a sign. Our attitude is that we can always get better. And I think that's a little bit of the growth mindset and it's a little bit of the entrepreneurial mindset to say that. Uh, what can we do better tomorrow that we're not doing today? So we're always looking at key performance indicators by each department. What's going well? What's not going well? How can we get better? And I think that also drives, like I said, process improvement and uh, entrepreneurism at Metropolitan Ministries. And that's one way an engineer can make a difference because uh, I can't counsel anybody. I can't case manage. I can't educate, but I can certainly help. Uh, try to make things better and uh, make uh, us a more effective organization. Wow. Wow. There's so much in there. Thank you for that. And that that's a great introduction. So uh, many, many things I want to dig into. Of course, I want to get back to the calculated risk-taking because that's what entrepreneurs do every day, I think, uh, is, is work to minimize risk while still focusing on being innovative, but let, let's go back a little bit to your background. And um, it, it sounds like to me that a lot of the skills you learned when you were working in, in telecommunications and in the phone space, uh, it, it, which has changed dramatically, as you pointed out, um, really helped prepare you for this. But how was the transition from for-profit to not-for-profit? And, and how did that come about for you? Because it's interesting, as you know, I'm an educator, and so I believe in education and love your education mission. Um, but a lot of our students who study entrepreneurship are really interested in, you know, having a mission-driven uh, business that makes a difference in the world, um, you know, which may or may 
may be may or may not be for profit. So I'm really curious about how that transition worked for you. And and um, you know, it, it sounds like to me you run this not for profit just like you would a, a for profit on many levels. We do. We we think about ROI, both social return on investment as well as financial return on investment, uh, because we are so heavily supported by the community. So 80% of our support comes from individual citizens making donations. Less than 20% comes from uh, government. And so uh, both with government money, you got to give an account. But when you're in the community and people look at you and they say, what did you do with my dollars? Whether it's a $25 gift or a $25,000 gift, uh, stewardship and trust is all we have to be successful. So we do work very hard on that. Uh, on my personal journey, uh, I worked, again, was very successful. had my last large sale locked up my account for a long term in revenue. And this was at the height of the tech bubble in 2000. And uh, you mentioned uh, Valerie before she was uh, offered to run a company in Boston. So we moved to Boston. And so I was right in the middle of a transition right in 2000. And then 9-11 hit. And 9-11 reminded us all, uh, life can be short. Those first two planes left Boston. A lot of those planes and, uh, were heading to the West Coast, to the tech sector. So there were people on those planes that were associated uh, with my wife's organization. There were uh, people in my neighborhood that were on those planes. I didn't know those folks by name. But I think your proximity uh, to the uh, New York, Boston, uh, Washington, D.C. really impacted. I mean, 9-11 shook the whole country, but in those communities, it really hit close to home. And it's like, well, life is short. You know, Stephen Covey has that, uh, you know, with the seven habits, think with the end in mind. And, that, you know, that really became something to think about. It's like, wow, life is short. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And my wife was very successful. I was very successful. I just felt like, well, I can I can do something different. And I just wasn't sure what it was going to be at the time. Uh, I was doing some independent sales repping and things like that. But I said, you know, I'm going to go down. I had supported homeless shelters financially uh, in my hometown of Detroit. But I never saw myself going inside a homeless shelter. Like, you know, what could I offer them? I, 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 I'm not going to do anything specific. But I would take my corporate groups out volunteering at the holidays, like a lot of folks do for team building. We'd all go down to the food bank, sort food or, or make food, cook food. And then we'd go out drinking afterwards and have a good time. But I remember how good it felt to volunteer and give back. And that was actually a culture. The organization I worked for at the time was Ameritech. Ameritech had a training center in Hoffman Estates. And we would all fly out there, take limousines uh, from O'Hara to Hoffman Estates. And the first thing you did was you'd get on a bus and you'd go back to Caprini Green and you would work with folks at different organizations for team building. And it, it kind of, I think volunteering creates a level playing field and gives you an opportunity for team building and get to know your folks. So for me, um, I took that corporate example of what happened for me and I started doing that with my work group. So all my direct reports, we would always volunteer at the holidays. So 9-11 happens. It's this great tragedy to you know for so many and it's like i remember how good i felt 
volunteering. I'm going to just go down to the Boston rescue mission and see if I could help out. And I said to them, like, you know, I can't counsel, I can't case manage, but I, I, I could probably help you with some uh, exposure and maybe work some corporate accounts for you and just see, you know, if I could help. So I just started doing that as a volunteer. And that's when I learned that little manifesto that I told you about that anybody can make a difference in a nonprofit because what I did is I got to learn some, uh, get to beat the clients, you know, and you know, you can't fundraise for something you don't believe in. And when you get to know the clients and their stories, this was pretty much all folks coming out of addictions. Uh, they would uh, do their detox work at a medical facility. And then we, ran a post-detox program and, and then a life skills program. And what I got involved in was just maybe trying to help some folks find a job and build relationships. Uh, I got a couple of clients to run the Boston Marathon, and we got all kinds of media exposure for that. And I, that's when I realized, you know, I can do this. I can find it. You know, engineers like to solve problems. Okay, so what's the problem we're trying to solve? What role could I have help? fixing it what gaps could i you know help fill and that's kind of how i got into working with the homeless which was back in boston and so then when we moved to tampa i checked out metro which was a different dynamic primarily family dynamic and families can get hardly <laughs> difficult to figure out right you know if if the kids are the innocent victims how do you how do you take care of kids and how do you work with mom and dad with whatever challenges they have and you know, when I got to Metro, there were a lot of things that needed to get fixed. It wasn't, it wasn't in a great position. And, and I, I just remember, you know, like if it was perfect, they wouldn't need me. So, you know, when you go into a nonprofit space, yeah, there's going to be challenges, but you have an opportunity to make it better. And that's kind of the, the role that I took is how can I make a difference? How can I help out uh, in some way? And, and most times that had to do with just, again, uh, you know, trying to solve uh, problems for individuals as well as for the organization uh, so that people could uh, get back on their feet. So how many years did you say you've been, or maybe you didn't say, how many years have you been with Metropolitan Ministries? I've been there 17 years, and uh, it's almost like half and half right now. I worked corporate for 21 years and 21, 22 years total in nonprofit. Um uh, but yes, yeah, 17 at Metro. And I, like I did, when I came to Metro, I didn't come there to be a leader. I just wanted to help out and, and, uh, and found myself uh, moving into different leadership roles uh, and trying to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. So 17 years. I, I'm, I'm wondering, has the organization grown significantly over that time? Yes, uh, immensely. We were... Uh, about an $8 million organization. Uh, we were a two-star charity, which was not a good thing. Uh, only 70% of every dollar was going to programs. Uh, uh, we're, we're probably about a $42, $45 million organization on the operations side, maybe another $10 million in, in our foundation and some of our other entities. And uh, four-star charity, 89% of every dollar goes directly to programs and the variety of programs that we run. Um, as you could imagine as an engineer, you know, like what, are, what's the upstream problem for homelessness? 
well, sometimes it's rent is, you know, somebody just wants to avoid being an addiction, getting evicted. Cause once you get evicted, it's on your record. It, it just puts you in this spin. So sometimes people just need navigation services. Sometimes people just need rent assistance. So we are actually spending more money these days working upstream, trying to solve smaller problems and more of them than waiting for people to show up at our front door, uh, you know, seeking shelter in a whole array of programs. It costs so much more to have a family in a shelter than it does to prevent them from becoming homeless in the first place. So right. we work real hard to uh, intervene up front and then, and also be in neighborhoods. So like, we're no longer just like come to our front door. We're in distressed communities on a regular basis every day. We're in schools working side by side with school social workers to help meet the needs of families right where they're at versus waiting for them to come to us, you know, between nine to five, Monday through Friday. Yeah. So it, this is a big operation and, and it's, uh, it's so impressive. I mean, three, you know, you've got your three streams, uh, or three pillars, I guess, of, of, um, uh, of, of, of your vision and your mission where, you know, that you, um, that you work on and, and you've got volunteers, you've got employees, um, you've got so many moving pieces. And so, I mean, we're talking about a big operation here and, and, uh, it's, it's so impressive. I know we have a lot of students at the university of Tampa that volunteer, um, and I know a lot of people from the community. So, so managing uh, employees and managing volunteers, that's, that's quite a feat. And so I'm very curious about, uh, about how, you know, we talked about having an entrepreneurial mindset and being innovative and, and dealing with change. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to, to setting strategy for the organization and, and leadership and management. How does that work for you? Well, there's a lot in that question. Uh, you know, you know, just, you know, the whole conversation about culture uh, is a big deal. We, we now have 300 employees. We have 22,000 volunteers who touch us uh, on an annual basis. They save us. Uh, three to four million dollars in payroll costs, but obviously with three hundred employees, you can imagine our payroll costs are significant. So, um, getting the culture right and making sure engagement is high is, uh, I think, a real uh, full time job. Making sure volunteers feel welcomed and like that experience that I had in corporate. Like, if you can't be good stewards of people's time when they come to volunteer. How are you going to demonstrate stewardship and everything else you do? So we really look at the value of people's time as a really strong value. And we want to honor uh, volunteers when they come to volunteer and that they find themselves uh, making a difference. So we work real hard on the culture uh, on a regular basis. And to me, that comes from you know what any, I think, good leader does, you you. You, you trust but verify, you skip level, you get around, you, you're visible, you see the things, you ask the questions, what should I know that I don't know? You give a voice to your people, uh, and you advocate for them as much as you can because a lot of folks uh, come to to nonprofit and a lot of young people will come to nonprofit. But what they find is that at, at the early stages, so many nonprofits don't pay well that it's, you know, you want to move on with life, you might, you know, 
you know, you might get married, you might have kids. And so that nonprofit journey and your passion, it's hard to sustain. Well, we're, we're trying real hard to retain our staff and, and make sure that we have good wages for people that they can grow with us within the organization. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of work that we do on the culture front for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that leads to an, a whole other series of questions, I think, um, about, you said, you know, managing, uh, managing salaries and budgets and ensuring that your employees are able to uh, have a, have a meaningful wage. And, um, and, and, and so you've got a huge budget to manage and you're constantly, I would guess, raising money. So entrepreneurs have to raise money, but hopefully not constantly. <laughs> but when you're running a not-for-profit, that must be a huge percentage of your uh, your uh, role. So can you talk to us a little bit about resource optimization and sustainability? You know, how do you ensure that you've got sustainable resources moving forward and that you're able to use those resources in the most meaningful way for both your, uh, the recipients of what, what Metropolitan Manage Ministry provides, but also for all your other stakeholders, your employees and the community at large. Yeah. So when it, when it comes to strategy, obviously you're looking for alignment within your mission, right? And then uh, Harvard does a great nonprofit leadership uh, workshop. And uh, they focus on good to great. And I was already a good to great disciple, right? So like if your audience could envision three circles, you know, your first circle is uh, where you have, uh, where you add value. And it's, it's part of your mission and you have passion for it, but you really add value. So that would be one circle. Second circle is your capacity to deliver that value. And then the third circle is that economic engine to support it. Is it sustainable? And Collins wrote, you know, for great organizations, they focus where those three circles intersect, right? And that's because you want to add value. You want to make sure you can deliver on that value. You want to make sure it's sustainable. We take that that model and look at it operationally with every one of our programs. And then I came across another model that, that kind of takes all those programs and puts it on a matrix. So it's called the matrix map. And you take every one of your programs and you look at, how is it adding value? How many resources does it take? Is it dependent on the general fund or is it fully sustainable through grants or, you know, the donor community believes in this project? And, and then you just you put that on an X, Y axis. Some programs uh, in our sector, since we're not heavily government funded, rely on the general fund. And so that they might be uh, left of the Y axis because they're a deficit program, but you make up that deficit uh, out of the general fund. Well, you want those programs to move closer to the right. You want them on the other side of the y-axis. So we look at all our programs that way. Are they adding value? If they're not high on the y-axis, do we really need to be doing this? Um, if they're, you know, if they're really expensive programs, you make the circle a little bigger, but it's a nice way to look at every program you have just on one sheet of paper, which programs cost the most. So you'll know if you replicate that in another community, that's going to take a lot of money, which programs are really highly dependent on the general fund. So you got to look at how you're funding and which ones take most of your resources. So we look at that 
And every year we reset our strategic plan for the next three, three years. What are we trying to accomplish? What are the problems we're trying to solve? What are we doing that's really adding value that we could do in other communities? So we're no longer just a downtown tap out program. We're in three counties. And the way we're expanding into those three counties is really leveraging this matrix map and this idea of the flywheel that Collins talks about in Good to Great, right? The things that you do really well, those are usually replicable in other communities. And that, you know, that becomes the flywheel that drives efficiencies because you've already learned how to deliver these things. You've learned how to engage the community to support these things. You know how much staff to hire. So you're not always trying to think things up from scratch. Um, doesn't mean you can't be entrepreneurial and do brand new things. But as you're growing as an organization, I think our key to growth was to grow the things that we do well and do more of that. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And so let's talk a little bit about, you, you said the things that you do well. So can you tell us a little bit more about, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you've taken some innovative approaches, and I'm guessing that some of that innovation has led to some some creative solutions that have, uh, you know, products or services, I guess would be a better descriptor of things that are kind of unique or, or special about what you do that might, might have come out of that willingness to think entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurially. So how does, how does, uh, how do you think about new initiatives? Where do they come from and how do they become part of of what you do uh, on a you know more regular basis that becomes a part of of the organization. You know, they, there's always you know uh, willingness to change is you know change growth and change can be hard things to do, right? Yeah, uh, and uh, we have some incentives to do that because we have an opportunity to impact people's lives. But COVID obviously was the great disruptor, and, and businesses realized. Oh, we can do meetings over the phone or people can work from home or we can still be productive working as on a team basis and leveraging technology. Well, so a lot of our growth and change came from COVID. What, what we realized is we helped more people than ever before with COVID when COVID hit. But after the uh, murder of George Floyd, we saw all the hurt in the community. It's like we're working harder than ever. And then there's all this pain what what are we missing what could we do better and you know we're not a social justice organization we're a social services organization but what what could we do and so that was a big like pressing question for us which really wasn't a question uh before uh for before us uh before the murder of george floyd so that happens so like well what are we going to do and uh, so we started looking at data as i said we're a data-driven organization we looked at all the people we were helping, and a lot of it was uh, first in, first out. You came to us for help, we would help you. Then we started looking at the demographics of where that help was coming from. And uh, what we realized is that a lot of people that were in hard-hit communities weren't getting our services because they either the digital divide is a real deal that's a real conflict, or um, they didn't know where to turn to get help. And so our Neighbor Hope Initiative 
is based upon data. It's based upon zip codes where child poverty is 30 to 50%. This is a study that the Florida Chamber of Commerce did. Where are all the zip codes of, uh, of need? And then we overlaid, where are we helping people? Where are the people we're helping from? Where do they live? And we were shocked to find most of our food and most of our rent assistance weren't going into these hardest-hit communities. He's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it is what it is, and organizations that face reality, you know, find a way to fix it. And so we said, well, that's not right. So we launched an initiative without um, a lot of, you know, fanfare, just said, let's get in the community and let's build relationships in community and put system navigators in the community and see how we can help people. So that's what we started to do. So that's something I'm proud of, that it's an innovative, it makes sense, it's going to make a difference in people's lives uh, initiative. And uh, uh, it's something that we're doing now in Pasco County, in Pinellas, uh, and in uh, Hillsborough County. And it's something that uh, we're doing also in the schools to get closer to the need and to help people that need it the most. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing that's very helpful today because we're also dealing with, uh, you know, I just saw in the news last night, there was a conversation about uh, uh, the expense of living in Tampa now. And you and I both have been here long enough to see um, a significant change in the cost. Uh, well, well, everybody is dealing, of course, with with high inflation right now, but, but also here in our area, the, you know, the cost of living has increased dramatically. And so I'm, I'm assuming that this system you put in place is very helpful today with what you're de- what we're dealing with. Yeah. I, I'll tell you that, you know, we've seen a 70% increase in people coming to us looking for some type of housing solution. They might've gotten a three day notice uh, for eviction. Um, we're seeing um, seniors. We're seeing seniors come to us. We're seeing seniors come to us. Fifteen uh, percent increase in seniors coming to us. Uh, that's all inflationary. Anybody on fixed income yeah. having a hard time keeping up. That the other part of that is early on in the year we saw thirty percent reduction in donations. Again, so again, those are all inflationary challenges. People at the bottom of our file that maybe give 20 to $50. Well, they're most of those are seniors on fixed income and they can't give and they shouldn't give. They should take care of themselves and, and take care of their own families. But um, it is a reality that when inflation is up, those charitable giving um, can see an impact and those that uh, are on fixed incomes or limited incomes, they can't give. They may be charitable in mind and spirit, but they can't give. So, with so many of our our donors uh, fitting that sector, we, we saw a, a net decrease of 30%. It's starting to close a bit, but it's still deficit relative to last year. Uh, and at the same time, the need is up. So always looking at, back to the whole topic we were talking about, how can we do things smarter or better? And how can we be more effective with the work we're doing? And how do we take dollars to move forward? I think you're seeing more collaboration in the in the nonprofit space than ever before because we're all feeling this this pinch and we're all trying to add value. And so I'm having more conversations with uh, at both ends of the spectrum: the the food bank community, the mental health and education community, uh, the housing community. We're all having more meaningful conversations 
to be more effective. And I do think at the end of the day, um, so much entrepreneurism is based on technology. I'm a big believer that AI and other technology solutions can drive uh, effectiveness and efficiencies into the nonprofit space that haven't been fully utilized uh, for many of us. Yeah, yeah. You just brought up two issues that I wanted to touch on briefly, and one of them was the importance of partnerships and networks, and and the other was technology. And and so you you mentioned them both, but I'm assuming that uh, you have a you you spend a lot of time uh, with building partnerships in your network and. Um, much like any entrepreneur, that's probably a big part of uh, your ability to succeed. That that strong network. It is, and and it's 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 in our vision statement. I didn't give you the whole vision statement, but this idea of uh, collaboration is one of the values that we say within our vision statement, as well as this idea of replicable models. Um, our our if you go into our early childhood education center, half the employees work for Metropolitan Ministries, the other half work for Hillsborough County Head Start. And so, you know, we run the Neighborhood Head Start program on our campus, and that's a good value for Hillsborough County, but also works for our mission statement, so it's a win-win. Our school is a K-5 through school. It used to be a charter school. Well, running a small charter school is not very effective. It, it's, the idea was to get kids back on grade level, because when mom's in a crisis mode, you know, she's not thinking about education of her kids. She just wants to make sure she keeps her kids and they're safe. So the school was always there to get kids back on grade level. Well, now our school was built with private dollars, close to a $6 million investment that we made. But the day-to-day -day operation is run by the school district of Hillsborough County. It's leveraging core competencies. Who can educate better, me running a small charter school or the school district? Uh, school district wins all the time. But all those expenses are off our balance sheet, but it, it's accomplishing our mission of breaking the cycle of homelessness. And the last time the state was doing ratings, the A, B, C, D ratings for school, that school was rated an A school, which shows you the potential of every child. These are all kids that have come out of homelessness, and it was rated an A school because uh, they were given an opportunity to succeed. It worked with our after-school programming. It worked with the school districts uh, during the school day programming to really make a difference in these kids' lives. So all that being said, those were two great examples of collaboration. The volunteers are a collaborative partner. Uh, the churches, the corporate communities are collaborative partners. So now let's keep working that model and drive it to the nonprofit community who are our nonprofit partners. Um, you know, there, there are times when we're competing and there's times when we're friends. Because we're striving for the private dollars. We're striving for grant dollars. But funders, obviously, like to see people work together. Um, you may not see that necessarily in the corporate world. Uh, competition is what feeds, feeds success in so many of businesses. But in the nonprofit space, uh, competition can help us be sharper and be more effective. Uh, but it also then creates opportunities for us to work together. Uh, when we can leverage core competence. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really insightful because it's kind of a balancing act uh, that you have to do there. So that, so um, you know, I know that I know this is probably one of the busiest weeks for you out of the year because we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. I'm just amazed because I know you feed a lot of people this week. Um, and how many? 
people do you estimate you're going to be feeding this week for Thanksgiving? So uh, about 14,000 families got turkeys and food boxes. And then we, we feed about 3,300 every day. And so uh, we looked at, and larger families get more food boxes than smaller families. So we did the math the other day, and it's close to 60,000 meals. Wow. Wow. 600,000 600, yeah, meals, I, was just I should say. say. Wow. wow 600,000 meals uh, that are uh, that are going to be represented through the holiday program that, that we're running. And then uh, we run all the way up to uh, Christmas morning uh, and do this all over again. So uh, it'll be, a, again, a total... We think it's probably going to end up being closer to 33,000 families by the time we're done, about 60,000 toys for kids in the community, and uh, 15,000 volunteers. So it's, again, it's a great illustration of what makes Tampa Bay great. It's also in four different counties. We're not making everybody come to us for food and toys. We're doing uh, 11 different pop-ups in communities of need. We've got different tents. We've got 30 different partners so the migrant community, the urban and suburban communities are all being represented. Yeah. Wow. Wow. What, what an impressive out, list of outcomes. So uh, I just have a, one more, a couple more questions very quickly before I let you go. Looking toward the future, what are your goals for Metropolitan Ministries? How does, how does an entrepreneurial mindset shape those goals? Because I know I can tell from talking to you that you bring that innovation mindset to everything that you're doing. So I'm just curious, are there any directions or projects you're particularly excited about? Well, we've got a, about an $18 million expansion in Pasco County. So I want to make sure that that gets done right, fully funded, and uh, in good hands. So that's the first thing. Um, we don't have uh, a shelter program in Pinellas County, but we've got a lot of outreach and prevention and hunger programs. So we really want to figure out where can we add value in Pinellas and uh, and where does the community want us and need us? We don't want to go in there like we've got it all figured out. We really want to learn from the community. How can we help with what's the brick and mortar investment we should be making there? And then finally, where we, we are located, a lot of gentrification is happening around us. And so what is the long-term strategy for some of our buildings that were built before the turn of the century? And um, how do we get that all kind of figured out? So. Um, yeah, I just gave everybody what I'm talking about to, to the board. But those are the three <laughs> key, key key things. But the second one, I mean, the very last one is, you know, succession planning. I, I want to finish strong. I just don't want to just finish. So the idea for me is to make sure the culture cultures in the best place it can be, make sure um, financially we're sound, and make sure that we've got strategies that can be delivered on uh, effectively. Uh, those are the things that I'm working on uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah, sounds exciting. And what I find striking is that everything we've talked about applies in a for-profit as well as a not-for-profit. You've talked about calculated risk-taking. You've talked about opportunity recognition. You've talked about uh, having empathy with your your customer and developing products and services that are going to going to solve problems for them. I mean, these are all things that any entrepreneur, whether they're in a 
like I said, a for-profit or not-for-profit needs to master. So congratulations to you for for all your hard work. And uh, we do live in a wonderful community here in Tampa Bay because I know know there are people like you and programs and all the volunteers that you have that really make a difference. If I were to ask you for one piece of advice for uh, someone who might like to, um, to, to, to follow in the type the, your pathway, either as a for-profit or not-for-profit entrepreneur, what, what would that advice be? Part of it is common sense, which is you're going to be drawn to what you're passionate about. You know, whatever we, we find that people that have been impacted in one particular area want to, somebody may have helped them through that journey, or they may have felt like there was more that could have been done to help them. So obviously you follow your passion and you follow that lead. And then I would just say that, you know, the things that we've been talking about, make sure you think about it for a circle because passion drives us, but it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee success. Right. So just like what you talk to all your students about, what are the elements? Can you add value? Who's already doing this? How do you come alongside? What can you learn? I at my old CEO used to say we were going to be a fast follower. I don't know if that works anymore in this world these days being a fast follower, but there's something to be said about making sure you've thought about the, the problem from end to end, not just wouldn't it be great if I had this thing that did this and made a world a better place. You got to think about all the other components needed to execute it and sustain your ideas. That's great advice. And I think embedded in that is when you don't know what to do, if you always go back to solving that problem, which I heard you talk about numerous times, um, that'll get you the answer, I think. So it's, it's, that's great, great advice. Uh, Tim, thank you for joining me today and for taking the time during this really busy, always busy for you, but especially busy time. Where can our listeners find out more about Metropolitan Ministries and maybe if they'd like to support you uh, and, and your team and the programs there at, at Metropolitan Ministries, how can they do that? Uh, easiest thing is go to the website, Metromin, M-E-T-R-O-M-I-N, metromin.org. And there's information about helping, and there's also information if you know somebody who needs some help. Uh, there's some easy navigation buttons that you can use. Uh, and we love uh, the university students when they come. They make us a better organization. We love I- new, fresh ideas, and we're welcoming people that can help us become a better organization. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Rebecca. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.